Thank you. I'm grateful to be speaking before you this morning and to have gotten here safely, <laughs> along with the, the rest of you. I was stranded in Fairfax uh, last night, but it was, it was fine. I have a deep respect for the ethical culture movement and deeply value the friendship and collegiality of your senior leader, Amanda. I'm told that your theme for this month, as we can see on the sign, is duty and commitment, and I'd, like, and I'd like to invite us to reflect on what it might mean to think about our duty and commitment as to poetically dwell on the earth as a mortal. That phrase comes from a 19th century poem by Johann Holderlin. A century later, Martin Heidegger published an essay titled Poetically Man Dwells, and all there's, there's a lot to be said about both of those figures, both good and bad. I'd like to skip ahead to the 21st century and Jim Edwards, the undergraduate philosophy professor that introduced me to both Heidegger and Holderlin and many other thinkers. In his book, The Plain Sense of Things, The Fate of Religion in an Age of Normal Nihilism, Edwards writes, alluding to Holderlin and Heidegger, what should it mean for us to be religious? And I understand that, that Wes and the ethical movement actually went to court to, to, be, uh, to, get, to have the ethical movement no, uh, noticed and recognized as a religion. So what should it mean for us to be religious in the 21st century? Edwards writes, I have answered it thus, to dwell poetically on the earth as a mortal. And I'd like to use that phrase as a starting point for reflecting on meaning and duty and commitment in our lives. And perhaps one reason that Edwards suggests, you know, a lot of professors said a lot of things to me over the years. Um, I do not remember many of them, but one of the thing, but Edwards' phrase, to poetically dwell on the earth as a mortal as a response to what it would mean for us to be religious, has really stuck with me. And I think one reason that is, is that he was the most open, articulate, and matter-of-fact atheist in my college. Of late, there have been many headlines about the rise of the nuns. That's not N-U-N-S, right? It's not the nuns on the bus. It's the N-O-N-E-S. Uh, those who identify as spiritual but not religious. But back in the late 90s in South Carolina, where I grew up and went to college, let's just say outspoken atheists were rare. I had a few good friends in high school that were self-professed agnostics, but Dr. Edwards was the first atheist I met who made atheism seem like a well-considered worldview that a healthy, thoughtful, compassionate adult might choose. I remember him challenging us by saying that his atheism, his skepticism, his lack of traditional religious beliefs really had very little to do with the way he lived his life. And the flip side of his point was that actually most people's religious beliefs, for better or worse, do not have much to do with how they actually live their life. He invited us to consider that most people's socioeconomic status affects the car they drive, the size of house they live in, and how they spend their time, much more so than their religious beliefs. If the opposite were the case in our allegedly Christian nation, we would see presumably a much smaller wealth gap, among many other things. Edwards challenged me to see much more clearly than I had previously how easy it was for a growing number of people to be good without God as well as to see how many alleged Jesus followers in practice worship money and status. Along these lines, as a young person seeking a path that would make more sense to me than the Southern Baptist Christianity of my childhood, the following passage from Edwards particularly stood out to me. 
He wrote, I am a religious skeptic, and about my skepticism I feel neither pride nor shame. It's not an achievement, nor is it a failing. It's just a fact about me. And given what we know about the world, most traditional religious claims just don't seem sensible to me. Crucial evidence for them is lacking, and important contrary evidence is regularly, routinely ignored or patronized. I used to believe in some of those things, I admit, just as I used to believe in old St. Nick and in the value of intercollegiate athletics. <laughs> but for good or ill, the world I've come to inhabit in my mid-50s hasn't supported my earlier and somewhat nicer conceptions of it. Not that I think that all those who still believe in the things I've mentioned are crazy or irrational or naive. They're perfectly good anthropological and psychological explanations for any such belief, and for my unbelief, too, naturally. None of us skeptic or believer is in a position to throw large stones. Each of us has to live in the world that she thinks she sees, staring and squinting to the limits of her vision. Lots of us will turn out to be wrong about some of the things that we think are most important to us. But finally, we have to call them like we see them and then live with and, of course, argue about the results. I was deeply impressed as well by Edward's pragmatism. He was deeply part of that uh, American pragmatist uh, tradition, very influenced by Richard Rorty. If you know that philosopher at all, I commend his work to you if you don't know it. And to offer you just one more brief excerpt of Edward's writing, he continues that, My failure to believe in some large things, such as God, doesn't necessarily mean that I do believe in other large things, like humanity with a capital H, or science with a capital S, or reason with a capital R. If I can be said to believe in anything at all, it's a series of fairly small things. I believe in keeping Kirtland's warblers alive in keeping most of one's promises, in cultivating a decent regard for the truth, in offering kindnesses to strangers, including the strangers within ourselves, in making things better for the sick and poor, and in preserving a healthy vulgarity. (laughs) Suffice it to say that as a young 20-something, my interest was piqued when I would hear Edwards, this staunch atheist, say, what would it mean for us to be religious? We, you know, early 21st century Western intellectuals, what would it mean for us to be religious? And I was equally intrigued by his answer, to dwell poetically on the earth as a mortal. As an atheist, Edwards' choice to use the word religious was intentional. For better or worse, we live in a time when our culture continues to have a strong and complex religious history from which we can choose to draw. As an an inheritor of this history, Edwards writes, we need and luckily still have available to us practices that can contain, concentrate, and transmit sacramental energies. And you're going to talk some about that, I think, next month uh, with this theme about the sacred. Energies for limitation in the face of hubris and for transformation in the face of complacency that used to be bound up in the stories of the gods. That word practice is important because what we do is almost always more important than what we say. As social psychologists tell us, behavior is believable. Behavior is believable. So what are these practices that are still available to us without also being dishonest to 21st century knowledge? The novelist Norman MacLean tells, his story, tells this story about the physicist A.A. A. Michelson. Some of you may know um, MacLean wrote A River Runs Through It, among other excellent books. 
He writes about Michelson, when I was a young teacher and still thought of myself as a billiards player, I had the pleasure of watching Michelson play billiards nearly every noon. He was by then one of our national idols, having been the first American to win the Nobel Prize in science for the measurement of speed of light, among other things. To me, he took on an added luster because he was the best amateur billiards player I had ever seen. Uh, One noon, while he was uh, still shaking his head at himself for missing an easy shot, after he'd had a run of 36 or 37 shots, I said, you're a fine billiards player, Mr. Michelson. And he shook his head and said, no, I'm, I'm getting old. I can still make the long three cushion shots, but I'm losing my touch on the short ones. He chalked up, but instead of taking the next shot, he finished what he had to say. Billiards, though, is a good game, but billiards is not as good a game as chess. He made it final by saying painting, is it, but chess, though, is not as good a game as painting, and painting is not as good a game as physics. Then he hung up his cue and went home to spend the afternoon painting a large tree on his front lawn. For me, the equivalent might be to say that ultimate frisbee is a good game. But frisbee is not as good a game as watching and discussing excellent films. And film criticism is not as good a game as preaching sermons or platforms, teaching classes and writing books. But then perhaps I might go home and watch a film. What would be the equivalent practices for you that allow you to dwell poetically on the earth as a mortal? What are your practices of authenticity that make you feel more grateful, more alive, more yourself, and more connected to the world and to the people around you? What people, places, or things do you need more of or less of in your life to make time and space for your poetic practices in the short time that we have on this earth. A decade after I first met Dr. Edwards, the climate for atheism changed in our country and began to shift. In 2004, Sam Harris published The End of Faith, which became a bestseller. Two years later, saw Richard Dawkins's The God Delusion. The same year, Daniel Dennett published Breaking the Spell, Religion as a Natural Phenomenon. Another major bestseller appeared in 2007, the late Christopher Hitchens's God is Not Great. Hawkins, Dawkins, Dennett, and the now late Christopher Hitchens have been called the four horsemen of the non-apocalypse. What is most significant about these so-called new atheists is not anything particularly original about their ideas, because their ideas are, for the most part, contemporary updates of perspectives that can be traced through thousands of years of free thinkers in various cultures. Rather, what is new is the growing public interest in their arguments. As a result, many individuals and groups are feeling more emboldened to publicly question traditional religious claims, and a significant inclusion you may remember in President Obama's first inaugural address was that he said we are a nation of Christians and Muslims, Jews and Hindus, and non-believers. But as significant as the new atheist movement has been, their books have also been criticized as soft core atheism. When you compare them to Karl Marx, Friedrich Nietzsche, and Sigmund Freud. Long before Harris, Dawkins, Dennett, and Hitchens were deemed the four horsemen of the non-apocalypse, Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud were known as the masters of suspicion, referring to their skeptical approach of interpreting religious texts to seek to unmask unconscious bias. 
Marx sees religion as the sigh of the economically distressed that legitimizes the current unequal distribution of socioeconomic power. So for Marx, we need to unmask that the religious impulse distracts us from our dissatisfaction with the unfair economic playing field. Since some don't see any way to change economic inequality, they instead placate themselves with religion. By exposing the way that religion is merely an opiate of the masses, we can free ourselves, said Marx, to create a fair economic playing field for all. In Marx's famous words, workers of the world unite and occupy Wall Street. Well, I added that last part, right? The second master of suspicion, Nietzsche, sees religion as the weak trying to control the strong. For him, we need to unmask the ways that religion seeks to hold back the greatest among us from achieving their full potential by overcoming the limitations of traditional morality and becoming what he called the ubermensch, the beyond human. Finally, Freud sees religion as existential weakness seeking consolation. More bluntly, Freud sees the root of religion as the desire for one's mommy. That the felt longing for the presence of God is really a desire to return to the oceanic feeling of the womb. But each of these three renowned masters of suspicion owes a tremendous debt to an earlier but today less well-known professor of religion named Ludwig Feuerbach. Who learned about Feuerbach in college or read any of it? It's pretty rare, so just a few of you. Um, he was tremendously influential in the 19th century and mostly forgotten about today. Uh, Friedrich Engels, Marx's famous collaborator, said after reading Feuerbach's 1841 book, The Essence of Christianity, we all at once became Feuerbachians. Fascinatingly, the English translation of uh, The Essence of Christianity in the night was done uh, by uh, George Eliot, who's the author of Middlemarch. To give you a sense of the paradigm shift that he represented, Feuerbach argued that all statements that theologians and people of faith make about God are in actual fact statements made about human nature as a species. In a word, or really two words, they are psychological projections. Put in the form of one of his most famous refrains, the true sense of theology is anthropology. All claims made about God, according to Feuerbach, are actually, or in actual fact, reflections or projections of humanity. Thus, Feuerbach provocatively proposed that the key to unlocking the underlying truth of the religious impulse was to reverse the subject and predicate of traditional religious claims. It's getting a little grammar nerdy, but just hang with me. To reverse the subject and predicate of traditional religious claims in order to um, and claim for ourselves the unconscious truths that we had formerly projected onto the divine. So he writes that if the Jewish scriptures uh, state that God made humans in God's own image, what this really means, if you reverse the subject and predicate, is that humans made God in humanity's own image. As Voltaire said, if it's true that God created humankind in God's image, we wasted no time in returning the favor. Or if Christianity states that God is love, you reverse the subject and predicate, and you see that what's really going on is we're trying to say that love is God. In other words, we humans unconsciously sense the truth of love's central importance for the human condition and projected that truth onto God and said, God, 
God is love. But the invitation, once we become aware of this dynamic, once we unmask it, as the masters of suspicion invite us to do, and unmask and become aware of this dynamic of psychological projection, we can let go of the crutch of needing to say that God is love and claim for ourselves that love should be the ultimate concern of humanity. In that light, consider this parable from Peter Rollins' book, The Orthodox Heretic. There was once a world-renowned philosopher who, from an early age, set himself the task of proving once and for all the non-existence of God. Of course, such a task was immense, for the various arguments for and against the existence of God had done battle over the ages without either being able to claim victory. He was, however, a genius without equal and possessed a singular vision that drove him each day and long into the night in order to understand the intricacies of every debate, every discussion, and every significant work on the subject. The philosopher's project began to earn him respect among his fellow professors when, as a young man, he published the first volume of what would turn out to be a finely honed, painstakingly researched, encyclopedic Uh, volume, a masterpiece on the subject of God. The first volume of this work argued persuasively that the various ideas of God that had been expressed throughout antiquity were philosophically incoherent and logically flawed. As each new volume appeared, he often, he offered time and time again devastating critiques of the theological ideas that had been propagated at different periods of history. In his early 40s, he completed the last volume which brought him up to the present day. However, the completion of his work did not satisfy him. He still had not found a convincing argument that would demonstrate once and for all the non-existence of God. For all he had shown was that all the notions of God up to that time were problematic. So he spent another 16 years researching arguments and interrogating them with a highly nuanced logical analysis. By now, he was in his late 50s and had slowly been, been begun to despair of ever completing his life's work. Then late one evening, while he was locked away in his study, bent wearily over an old oak desk, surrounded by a vast sea of books, he felt a deep stillness descend upon the room. As he sat there motionless, everything around him seemed to radiate with an inexpressible light and warmth, and then deep in his heart, he heard the voice of God address him. Dear friend, the task you have set before yourself is a futile one. I've watched all these years as you poured your heart into this endless task, yet you fail to understand that your project can be brought to completion only with my help. Your dedication and single-mindedness have not gone unnoticed, and they have won my respect. As a result, I will tell you a sacred secret meant only for a few. Dear friend, I do not exist. (laughs) Then all of a sudden, everything appeared as it had before, and the philosopher was left sitting at his desk with a deep smile breaking across his face. He put his pen away, and he left his study, never to return. Instead, in gratitude to God for helping him complete his lifelong project, he dedicated his remaining years to serving the poor. So through a Feuerbachian lens, we can see that when the atheist professor heard God say, Dear friend, I do not exist, that divine voice was his psychological projection of what he most deeply and unconsciously needed to hear 
articulated, which in turn freed him from his unhealthy complex, his unhealthy obsession with disproving arguments for and proving the non-existence of God. And that allowed him to dedicate his remaining years to the self-transcending practice of serving the poor, escaping his narcissism. Similarly, more than 2,500 years ago, the philosopher Xenophanes noted that it was no coincidence that the Ethiopians who have black skin worship dark-skinned gods, and that the Thracians who have blue eyes and um, red hair worship gods with blue eyes and red hair, and that if oxen, horses, and lions had religion and hands, they would no doubt paint their gods to look like oxen and horses and lions. The dangerous parallels when individuals and groups take their psychological biases that they have projected onto God literally and use that rationale as a sacred mandate to turn their misogyny, their racism, and their homophobia into divinely ordained sexist, racist, and heterosexist laws. That's how books get censored and people get burned at the stake. Although there are many compelling uh, reasons and appropriate times to take ancient wisdom seriously, metaphorically, archetypally, we go awry when flat-earth metaphors and pre-Copernican theologies are taken literally. But here's where it gets really interesting. Feuerbach says further that what today is atheism, tomorrow will be religion. What is today is atheism, tomorrow will be religion. He was saying that back in the 19th century. One contemporary theologian calls this dynamic the religious uses of modern atheism. Or as one contemporary philosopher says about his work that seeks to take the criticism of the hardcore atheists very seriously, he writes, I am trying to open thinking and practice to the event that is playing itself out underneath the word God. That's that, right to that parable of the atheist professor. I'm trying to open thinking and practice to the event, to the verb-like thing that is happening underneath that word, God. Connecting back to my college, Professor Edwards writes the following in the final sentences of his book, The Plain Sense of Things, The Fate of Religion in the Age of Normal Nihilism. They are Edwards' attempt to suggest how he, and perhaps we as well, can find meaning duty, and commitment in this complex and messy life in which we find ourselves in the early 21st century. What should it mean for us to be religious? I have answered it thus, to dwell poetically on the earth as a mortal. That the question and its proper answer might at some time be unintelligible or trivial is not the point. So far as I can see, this is our life. Should we not live it as simply and sincerely and joyfully as we can? This is our one life. Let's live it as simply and sincerely and joyfully as we can. Thank you.